Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. Yeah, this is episode 10 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Monday, October 25th, 2021. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious. Last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer would not allow me to say that on the radio. And yes, there is all kinds of evidence out there. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. This, so this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. And as I promised on social media this morning, I'm going to call out the CEO of Cumulus Media and the board of directors by name. I came across uh, a heart-wrenching short video of a widow, a mom of three young boys, whose husband, at 45 years old, FBI special agent, by the way, um, got the jab voluntarily months before it was required and didn't last 24 hours. Didn't last 24 hours. So first, I'm going to play for you what Mary Berner, president and CEO of Cumulus Media, said about being angry with unvaccinated people. The message that she gave to Cumulus Media employees back on August 11th. And then I'm going to play for you what the widow of a man who's just trying to serve his country has to say about vaccine mandates. And we'll see, we'll see what side you come down on. Now, I took a look a while back at Cumulus Media's board of directors after Mary Berner, president and CEO, put out her vaccine mandate. And there's no diversity here. No, I don't mean just that they're all white. I mean that they all seem to be New York liberals. From the CEO to the chairman of the board, Andy Hobson, and the board members, David Baum, Matthew Blank, Tom Castro, Joan Gilman, Brian Kushner. No, uh, no diversity here. As a matter of fact, one of them, one of them even served for a while in the office of Senator Chris Dodd, a horrible liberal Democrat United States Senator. You're not going to find anybody in a cumulus board of directors who's going to say, oh, yeah, I was an intern for uh, Rand Paul at Ted Cruz. No, 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 no. They're all in that that New York City bubble. Anyway, let's uh, let's start let's start with uh, Mary Berner, the CEO of Cumulus Media, explaining 
to her employees, of which I was one on August 11th, why she's angry with unvaccinated people. And then the heart-wrenching video that I got off Instagram from the widow of an FBI agent who got the Pfizer jab and didn't live 24 hours. In the spirit of expressing genuine emotion, I want to say now that I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad, and if I'm honest, not just a little bit mad. The euphoria that we all felt when effective and safe vaccines became widely available. And when the CDC told us that after such a massive personal and business upheaval, we could start to live our lives without limitations or fear again was awesome. We all felt like a dark cloud had finally lifted. And for the first time in a long time, we were seeing only bright skies ahead. Yet, that positive outlook for all of us, regardless of where you live, depended on all of us doing our part, which meant getting vaccinated. I am extremely proud and grateful that almost all of Force Cumulus has already done so or is in the process of getting vaccinated. But it makes me sad that the same statement doesn't hold true throughout our country. And that is why we find ourselves where we are today, in a place we didn't have to be. COVID cases once again exploding, driven by the extremely contagious Delta variant. And the CDC now recommended that all Americans, including including those of us who have done our part by getting vaccinated, wear masks indoor public, in indoor public venues that are in areas experiencing high COVID transmission rates, which is everywhere we operate. And here's where the mad part comes in. COVID patients in hospitals, virtually all of whom are unvaccinated, are once again starting to crowd hospitals in some areas of the country, taking beds from people dealing with illness that gave them no choice. I don't doubt that the CEO of Cumulus Media believes that COVID patients in hospitals are almost all unvaccinated. But just because she believes something doesn't make it true. And my experience with dealing with uh, upper management at Cumulus Corporate is that they are, to a man and or woman, um, just not susceptible to external stimuli. They know what they know, and they don't want to hear anything else. That's it. They know what they know, and they don't want to hear anything else. Now, I want to say thank you to Dan Bongino for mentioning me on his show last week. Uh, I want to say thank you to him for inspiring me to keep doing what I'm doing. And um, this this next clip is going to be kind of tough. Uh, Frankly, I cry every time I hear it. Jeffrey Young was a 45-year-old FBI special agent He died less than 24 hours after receiving the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine back in April. He leaves behind a widow and three little boys. And uh, so his widow is named Ona. And I came across 
what she had to say on Instagram. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. She's just begging for people to have a little bit of empathy. Just a little bit of empathy for people who uh, maybe have had a different experience. I, I, I don't know any, any other way to set it up than, than to just, just play it. And, and God bless you. And, and God bless Ona and her three little boys. And may the memory of her husband and their father be a blessing for them for the rest of their lives. Hi. Um, you know, you won't hear me talking about this topic very often, um, just because it's not who I am. Um, but last night, I went to curriculum night with, at my kid's school. And I went alone because I'm a new widow. And that's just what you do. You go alone. So upon walking out of the school, um, I hear these people talking. You know, people are loud. I hear these people talking. And one woman has her hands on her hips and says, I just don't get it. I just don't understand why people just won't give up their arm and get the shots. Like, is it really that difficult? And immediately I wanted to vomit for a lot of reasons. Um, but I'm here to tell you I'm not anti-vax. I've, I've never been an anti-vax person. I do believe in freedom. I do believe in our body, our choice. And I don't know where that whole thing went. Like I thought for a long time it was my body, my choice. But I guess those things are gone. Um, I think science is cool. Do I trust everything and all scientists? Absolutely not. Um, my husband very much so believed in freedom so much that he went to work every day to support our freedoms and to fight for our freedoms. And you know what, he believed in, he trusted science. He went and got his shot. He did before he had to, before it was told that you have to go get this. He did. And he would giggle at me and tell me, Ona, you're being silly. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Millions of people are getting them and they're fine. It's, we're gonna be okay. Okay, so he took his shot, he got it, his first one, within a couple hours, he didn't feel well. Went to sleep that night with a really, really bad headache. Told me he was fine, it was just a headache. I rubbed his feet, I gave him a wet washcloth, filled his water, you know, checked on him a couple times when I heard him wrestling, rustling around. He assured me he was fine, it was just a headache, a symptom of the shot or a side effect of the shot. Okay, about five hours later, after the last time I talked to him, I found him blue and dead in our bed with his arm hanging off the side of the bed. Okay, medical examiner has ruled it to be a coincidence, purely a coincidence. 
science, okay? I'm here to beg you, please, those that are fighting and speaking out against the mandates, please know that they are not doing it because they just don't want to give their arm for a shot. If we're told we have to do this, our freedoms are ripped from us. And you know what? Maybe some people who are leery of going and getting the shot, maybe it's because they know my husband. Maybe it's because they know one of the, I think it's what, 10,000 people right now that have died or been injured from the shots. Maybe it's because one of those people was somebody that they loved. Somebody that should not have been taken from our world so soon. So please have some compassion. And those that are making these mandates, I sure pray and hope that nobody that you love has been taken too soon or the health of them has been taken too soon from science, from a shot that was made so quickly. And we're told just to trust So please, before you stand there with your hand on your hip, saying, I just don't understand why everybody just won't give their arm up for the shot. Think about the other people around you, please. Her, uh, her plaintive plea. Please have some compassion. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask? You know, I I played you a clip of the CEO of Cumulus Media from August 11th of this year talking about how angry she is at people who won't get vaccinated because the CDC now says that vaccinated people have to wear masks indoors. Mary. Mary. Mary Burner, can you hear yourself? Can you hear what you're saying? Can you think through what you're saying? You're saying that, number one, almost everybody in hospital with COVID is unvaccinated, which is not true. But you're also saying, well, the CDC said that Even vaccinated people have to wear masks indoors now. Obviously. Implying. That the vaccine does not make you safe. And then you're angry. At the unvaccinated people. You don't make any sense, Mary. And I bet you make less sense to the widow, only young, than to other folks. Mary, do you actually believe what Joe Biden said, that we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated? Because that's the distinct impression I'm getting. Unbelievable. These people trust a guy like Dr. Anthony Fauci, or as my friend Mark Levin would call him, 
Anthony Tony Fauci Fauci. Well, I got something to tell you about Fauci. I got something to tell you about Fauci. Fauci has been abusing animals for 40 years. The great Leighton Woodhouse over at Substack has the article. Boy, that was loud. I thought we had a surge protector in here. I guess we need to get a bigger one. Anyway, I just put on my Facebook page, Anthony Fauci has been abusing animals for 40 years. Subtitle, the stuff you've seen on social media barely scratches the surface. And here's what he says. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the division of the National Institutes of Health run by Anthony Fauci, funded a recent experiment in Tunisia in which lab technicians placed drugged beagles' heads in mesh cages and allowed starved sand flies to feast on them alive. Then they repeated the test outdoors with the beagles placed in cages in the desert overnight for nine consecutive nights in an area of Tunisia where sandflies were abundant and ZVL, the disease caused by the parasite that the sandflies carry, was endemic. Now, the experiment was just one of countless tests done on animals with the funding of the NIH and of NIAID in particular over the course of decades. Estimates of the number of animals experimented on each year in the United States range from tens of millions to over 100 million, most of them paid for with taxpayer money. The White Coat Waste Project, the nonprofit that advocates against federal animal testing, says more than 1,100 dogs are experimented on in federal labs annually. For the amount of money and the amount of suffering entailed, little is produced. Much, much of it is pointless to begin with, but even the experiments that purport to measure the safety and efficacy of drugs are all but useless. In the NIH's own words, approximately 30% of promising medications have failed in human clinical trials because they're found to be toxic despite promising preclinical studies in animal models. About 60% of candidate drugs fail due to lack of efficacy. So that's a 90% failure rate. Much of that failure is due to the fundamental differences between human physiology and the physiologies of mice or rabbits or dogs. But even between animals with much closer physiologies, the predictive power of animal tests is unimpressive. Between mice and rats, there's only a 60% chance you'll get the same result. And when you repeat experiments on the same species, only four out of five times is the result the same and closer to two out of three times with toxic substances. And yet the tests continued unabated for three reasons. Number one, Institutional inertia. In other words, we've always done it this way. Number two, NIH director, Francis Collins. Number three, Anthony Fauci. 
The experiment in Tunisia at least had some practical scientific value. Around a half million people a year get ZVL, many of them children, and they generally get it from dogs. The experiment showed that dogs that are infected by the parasite are more attractive to the sand flies who carry the virus than uninfected dogs are. The same can't be said for other experiments paid for by Fauci's NIAID. Last year, the Institute paid the University of Georgia over $424,000 to infect beagles with a parasite before killing them and cutting them open. The purpose of that experiment was to test a drug that, by the investigator's own admission, had already been extensively tested and confirmed in numerous other animal species. In 2019, NIAID paid $1.68 million to inject and force-feed toxic drugs to 44 beagle puppies before killing and cutting them open. NIAID paid for the dogs to undergo, un, to undergo cordectomy, also known as debarking which is when the dog's vocal cords are severed so that lab technicians don't have to hear them cry and howl in distress. The purpose of the experiment was to generate data on the drug to support application to the FDA, even though the FDA expressly does not mandate that human drugs be studied in dogs. Here's some other NIH experiments. Beagles were infected with pneumonia in order to induce septic shock and experimental massive acute hemorrhage, then given blood transfusions. After 96 hours, animals still alive were considered survivors and were euthanized. Beagles were infected with anthrax in order to test a vaccine that had already been approved by the FDA. So-called mongrel dogs were subjected to induced heart attacks, scanned by MRI, then killed and dissected. Pigs, rabbits, guinea pigs, and monkeys were subjected to agonizing pain without anesthesia. These included infecting pigs with a virus that causes acute respiratory stress, hemorrhagic manifestations, paralysis, and other symptoms. Injecting rabbits with bacteria that create severe skin infections and ear lesions, and usually death within 12 hours. Infecting guinea pigs with a virus that causes multi-organ failure and death, as well as hind limb paralysis, or prolapsed rectum, and, and infecting monkeys with Ebola and tuberculosis, the latter of which produces symptoms, including rapid breathing, weight loss, and inability to drink. Monkeys had parts of their brains destroyed with acid. In order to, in order to increase their capacity for terror, and were then tormented, with simulated spiders, snakes, and other things they instinctively fear. These experiments have been going on for more than four decades now. And by the way, he links to, he links to the stories about this. In other words, when he says these experiments have been going on for more than four decades, he links to an article from last year in the Washington Times. Anyway, the NIH spends more than $40 billion a year on medical experiments. They are the principal source 
of funding for basic scientific research in America. The institutes estimate that 47% of their grants involve animal testing. It's likely that the percentage is much higher for NIAID alone, which commands a budget of $6 billion. There's an unwritten rule that in order to win a grant with the NIAID, that's Fauci's agency, you have to test on animals. Jim Keene, former USDA veterinarian and infectious disease specialist, said almost all investigators are trained using animal research. If you don't use that model, you don't get funding. When a researcher submits an application for NIH funding, their proposal is reviewed in the first round by their peers, almost all of whom are animal testers. Keene said it's sort of incestuous. According to Garrett Lavis, a former neuroscientist who used to experiment on mice and who has reviewed NIH grant applications, the professional insularity creates a culture of groupthink. He said, you have institutional inertia because of all these animal experimenters. He said, it's simply taken for granted that a good research design entails animal experimentation since everyone judging it has been trained that way. Keen, who was the whistleblower in a major New York Times expose of animal abuse at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center in Nebraska, believes another reason for the animal-centric culture at NIH is its leadership, namely Fauci and Francis Collins. He said people like Fauci and Collins really believe in that animal model. It's a huge impact having those two at the helm. The two directors' unquestioning commitment to animal testing sets, sets the tone for science as a whole. Thanks to them, it's industry standard. Keene said careers are built on it. Well, certainly Fauci's career is based on it. Fauci has been testing on animals for close to four decades and failed to produce results for just as long. In the 1980s, he infected chimps with HIV in his quest for a vaccine that still doesn't exist. When that approach failed, he proposed moving on to other animals. As recently as 2016, he was still touting the likelihood of a new HIV vaccine based on animal studies after a drug taken for intestinal illnesses showed promise in suppressing HIV in monkeys. Fauci personally flew to Boston to deliver the good news to the drug makers executives. Two years later, that turned out to be another dud. The Fauci of the 1980s at least had an excuse. Animal models may have been disastrous in terms of their predictive powers for humans, but it was arguably the best option scientists had at that time. In 2021, that isn't even remotely true. Dr. Thomas Hartung, tox toxicologist who directs Johns Hopkins Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing, said knowledge in the life sciences doubles every seven years. He says we have about a thousand times more knowledge now than at the time we designed animal tests. And so the article talks about some alternatives to animal testing, including 
in the near future AI, artificial intelligence. But calling these alternatives to animal testing is, in a sense, misleading. According to uh, Jeremy Beckham, an animal rights advocate and public health expert, he said that would imply that they were replacing what they were replacing had some utility in the first place. Beckham said these experiments are pretty much all bunk and don't need an alternative per se because they accomplish nothing. It's like asking, what's the alternative to astrology? So here's the thing. Here's the thing, and and this is something that I discussed on my my local talk radio show when I was still doing a local talk radio show in uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Fauci's agency also also gave millions to the University of Pittsburgh to do studies on aborted babies up to full term up to full term. So I um I'm sure the CEO of Cumulus Media and the board of directors don't know that. I don't know whether it would bother them or not. I have no idea. No idea. I'll put this on my Facebook page too. Judicial Watch, August 3rd this year. New Health and Human Services documents reveal millions in federal funding for University of Pittsburgh Human Fetal Organ Harvesting Project, including viable and full-term babies. I uh, got into an argument with a friend of mine uh, texting back and forth this morning who said that uh, animal testing is uh, it's necessary and it's vital because you don't want to test on humans. And I said, well, I mean, no, wait a minute. The same agency is testing humans, number one. And number two, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, maybe maybe somebody can make the the case for uh, you know testing lab rats or something, but I, I, I'm not sure that drugging beagle puppies and putting their heads inside of a mesh cage while they're drugged while they're alive as the drug starts to wear off and allowing hungry sand flies in the deserts of Tunisia to basically eat them to death. Uh, I don't think that's worth whatever it is that you're trying to figure out from that. Call me crazy. I've been called worse. And again, and again, and again, you know, some of the emails have come out uh, about how Anthony Fauci worships and adores Hillary Clinton whose hero is Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood, the racist organization that's still around. So um, all these people are connected. All these people are connected. I was talking to one of my brothers a little while back 
We're talking about the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, people who insist the vaccines are safe. Nothing's happening, even though thousands of people have died after getting the vaccines. And one of the things that puzzled him is uh, how people uh, decide who to believe. And there's probably a whole field of psychology about that, about how people tend to believe these kind of folks instead of those kind of folks. I don't know what that, that field of psychology would be, but what I do know what I do know is that I can't tell the difference between Anthony Fauci and Dr. Mengele, Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death, SS officer and physician during World War II, mainly remembered for his actions at the Auschwitz concentration camp where he performed deadly experiments on prisoners. And was a a member of the team of doctors who selected victims to be killed in the gas chambers. Yeah, that's... uh, I can't see the difference between Fauci and Mengele. And frankly, I can't see the difference between Fauci and Jeffrey Dahmer. No, 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 no. Hear me out. Dahmer started being cruel to animals when he was a little boy. Fauci's doing it as a grown man. And, and since Fauci has consistently downplayed and denigrated early treatment for COVID. You you, you track it with me? Since Fauci has consistently opposed the use of therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, how many deaths is he responsible for? How much blood is on Fauci's hand? I bet uh, hands. I bet he's responsible for more uh, more deaths than Jeffrey Dahmer was. I uh, I need to share that with you because uh, the heartbreak of hearing that widow that 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 new widow. who should not have had to have lost her husband. But he believed what he was told. He believed what he was told. Uh, Western Journal reporting, Sweden suspends Moderna shot indefinitely after vaccinated patients develop crippling heart conditions. You haven't heard that anywhere, have you? Oh, by the way, the, the, the thing about the Beagles, the thing about Fauci funding the, the torture of the Beagles, that has been big news all week long. So I listened this morning to the radio. 
to see if Fox News Radio would mention it. And at 9 Eastern, 8 Central, 7 Mountain, 6 Pacific, that would be the time to mention a big scandal from all weekend long. They didn't touch it. They didn't touch it. So I guess it is like my friend Todd Starn said. Fox News Radio is a bunch of liberals. They cover for Biden over and over again. They cover for the regime over and over again. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Now, a remarkable article today from Daniel Horowitz over at The Blaze. UK report raises concerns about suboptimal vaccine antibodies erasing natural immunity. Wait, what? Really? He says, in many areas of life, half a loaf is better than no loaf at all, but when it comes to vaccines, the opposite is true. Half-baked antibodies injected throughout the entire population can make the virus even stronger and negate people's natural immunity. Thus, all the defenses of the leaky vaccine suggesting that it at least conveys some protection are actually extremely concerning. A point driven home by a nugget in the most recent surveillance report from Public Health England on page 23 of their COVID-19 vaccine surveillance report, week 42, British health officials report a shocking finding. They believe their serology tests are underestimating the number of people with prior infection due to recent observations from UK Health Security Agency surveillance data that N antibody levels appear to be lower in individuals who acquire an infection following two doses of vaccination. In other words, the vaccine might be reducing the all-important N antibodies that one generates from natural infection. Kudos to former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson for discovering this important point. See, up, up until now, we've been operating under the assumption that those with prior infection don't need the vaccine to boost immunity, and taking the shots would only expose them to the growing risk of side effects. However, what if the shots are actually sliding back the natural immunity generated in those with previous infection? What if that is related to the macro concern that a narrow-spectrum vaccine with suboptimal antibodies that only recognize a spike protein of the virus, but not the N, the nucleocapsid, of the virus will cause B cells in those with the vaccine to learn to produce only S antibodies, the spike proteins, which are slower acting and less sterilizing. In other words, they don't stop the transmission than the N antibodies, which are faster acting and more effective in their protection against the virus. It's not like we weren't confronted with some other warning signs that the vaccine could perhaps negate some of the immunity acquired from prior infection. In March, researchers from Mount Sinai in New York and Hospital La Paz in Madrid posted a preprint study indicating that at least the second Pfizer shot might weaken T-cell immunity. In a shocking discovery, 
After monitoring a group of vaccinated people with both with and without prior infection, they found in individuals with a pre-existing immunity against SARS-CoV-2, the second vaccine dose not only fails to boost humoral immunity, but determines a contraction of the spike-specific T-cell response. They also note that other research has shown the second vaccination dose appears to exert a detrimental effect in the overall magnitude of the spike-specific humoral response in COVID-19-recovered individuals. So, mass vaccinating with leaky suboptimal antibody production could serve as a Trojan horse and make people more susceptible to an ever-enhanced virus. It's not like we had no warning about the possibility of viral enhancement through waning and suboptimal vaccine-mediated antibodies. On page 52 of Pfizer's Emergency Use Authorization for an Unapproved Product Review Memorandum, it is admitted that antibody-dependent disease enhancement was a possibility in the long run with waning efficacy. The FDA regulators write in that memo, quote, However, risk of vaccine-enhanced disease over time potentially associated with waning immunity remains unknown and needs to be evaluated further in ongoing clinical trials and in observational studies that could be conducted following authorization and or licensure. In the April 9, 2021, follow-up memo, page 40, the FDA follows up with the same concern. Well, here we are today. And we now know this vaccine wanes so badly that they are pushing boosters for everyone as transmission rates among the vaccinated begin to overtake the unvaccinated. Now, that's something that's something that would shock the CEO of Cumulus Media, Mary Burner, because she said everybody, almost everybody in the hospitals for COVID are unvaccinated. She probably has no idea about any of this stuff. Anyway, the article continues, at the time of the April FDA memorandum, it was claimed that the vaccines were not waning, but several months later, the vaccines leaked so much that now the CDC is not even ruling out the possibility of deeming those without booster shots unvaccinated, just like in Israel. So with the vaccine-mediated antibodies wane beyond what anyone could have imagined, and we are seeing with our own eyes that the virus is getting worse instead of better. How is the concern of viral enhancement not even entertained? According to PHE data, 86% of all UK residents over age 12 have received at least one shot, including nearly everyone in a vulnerable age bracket. Yet the summer and early fall curve, as presented by Worldometer, has blown out the magnitude of the, of the case curve last year when nobody was vaccinated, and the daily numbers are reaching close to their winter peak. The case rates per capita are now higher among the vaccinated than the unvaccinated in every age cohort over 30. Huh. Almost makes you, and, and, he, and he links to the, the proof here, almost makes you think maybe Cumulus Media jumped the gun. Again, according to the PHE data out of the UK, 
the Public Health England data out of the UK. Among those who died within 60 days of testing positive for COVID over the past weeks in the UK, past three weeks in the UK, 83% of those were fully vaccinated. Let me run that by you again. According to this new report from Public Health England, and he links to it, among those who died within 60 days of testing positive for COVID over the past three weeks in the UK, 83% of them were fully vaccinated. Now then, some of those deaths were obviously incidental and among the most vulnerable groups, the vaccination rate is over 90%, but still something is not right. This is not what we would expect from any minimally effective vaccine. Consider the fact that they are now taking young children who are not vulnerable to this virus at all and who will produce impervious lifelong natural immunity, and aside from injecting them with numerous side effects, perhaps their natural immunity will also be mitigated by the suboptimal antibodies. Why on earth would anyone with a shred of intellectual honesty make these shots available, much less mandate them, to young children? Behold the power of a leaky vaccine. When it comes to vaccines, half a loaf is not better than no loaf. It is a poisonous loaf. Oh my goodness. Daniel Horowitz over the blaze article entitled UK report raises concerns about suboptimal vaccine antibodies erasing natural immunity. Oh, my goodness. Please. Please don't tell me that the same government who pays the University of Pittsburgh millions to harvest organs out of full-term live aborted babies, please don't tell me that they are concerned about your health or my health or our children's health, they're monsters. They're monsters. And one of the things that we do here, we don't sugarcoat things for you. You know what I'm saying? We don't sugarcoat things. You know, it's remarkable to me that when I look at the statistics, the Doc Washburn show, of course, to begin with, Arkansas is going to be the state that has the most downloads because, you know, that's where I used to do my most recent local radio talk show. And Texas is number two, but then after Texas... We have a whole lot of people downloading from Illinois, New York, and California. And 
I have to think that this is because people in some of those places are starving for the truth and have had it with the jackboots of the government thugs trying to take away their freedom. Case in point, New York Post. 29-year-old man accused of trying to strangle an 11-year-old girl in a park in Manhattan, New York City, was arraigned and released on $7,500 bail Saturday night. Nathaniel Dorenzo of St. Mark's Place, New York City, was arrested Saturday morning for a bizarre, broad daylight attack on the young girl and another minor last Wednesday afternoon. On Saturday evening, he appeared for his initial hearing with his father donning a gray suit. He was charged with second-degree strangulation, two counts of acting in a manner injurious to a child, second-degree harassment, and two counts of assault. According to police, just around noon, October 20th, Dorenzo approached the girl and her classmates at Stuyvesant Square and began to yell at them before spraying water on the group and trying to attack them, trying to attack them. When the young girl tried to fight back, cops say Dorenzo grabbed her by the hair and punched her in the face. He then allegedly wrapped his hands around the girl's neck, trying to strangle her, according to police. The girl was taken to Mount Sinai Beth Israel Hospital as a result of her injuries. One of the girl's classmates, a 15-year-old boy, tried to intervene once he saw the girl being attacked. Dorenzo allegedly hit the boy who was treated for minor injuries on the scene by EMS. And this guy's out on bond. This guy's out on bond. Should be charged with attempted murder. $7,500 bond. But that's, that's the Big Apple these days. That's New York City. That's why people that I know who used to live there have gotten out of there. So I want to say thank you, especially to the folks in Illinois, California, and New York, which three states are number three, four, and five on our download list. It's been remarkable to me. Thank you so much. And please spread the word to the other sane people still left in Illinois, California, and New York. We're going to keep doing this as long as God provides us this, uh, this platform. I need to get a drink of water and take a breath. Uh, this will be uh, less than 30 seconds. It will be quick and painless. Uh, this is the longest I've ever gone without playing one of these. So, uh, so here it is. You're listening to The Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download to your smartphone. The show is also available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, also I want to say thank you uh, to Chris O'Brien. Chris O'Brien, who, uh, who interviewed me over the radio. He's got a, uh, a new podcast called um, The Ozone Radio. 
So you might want to check that out. Uh, uh, apparently, I'm going to be on there at some point, the interview that we did uh, over the weekend, and he uh, had a lot of good advice. Had a lot of good advice for me. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is maddening, and this is enraging. You know what I'm saying? And this is why, this is why the governor of Florida is the best governor in the state, and it's not even close. A guy named Ron DeSantis, uh, my son had the honor of meeting uh, Governor DeSantis about a week or so ago. Check it out. Uh, over this shot, which is basically a personal decision. And you're right, what Biden's doing is unconstitutional. He does not have the authority to do this, but what it will do on a practical level, um, in addition to being unconstitutional, in addition to be taking away people's personal choices, uh, is it will wreak havoc in the economy. Because even if a small percentage of these folks end up uh, losing their jobs or voluntarily walking away, uh, you're going to have huge disruptions in medical, in logistics, in law enforcement, and so in Florida, our policy is very clear. We're going to have a special session, and we're going to say nobody should lose their job based off these injections. Uh, it's a choice you can make, uh, but we want to make sure we're protecting your jobs and your livelihoods. Yeah, not only that, but in a situation where there's crime spiking across the country, the president of the union, police union in Chicago, is estimating that 3,200 Chicago police are defying the vaccine and they will be off the job. That means off the streets. What is that doing to the American people and their feeling of safety? It's very concerning. Uh, your thoughts on, on where this is going? I mean, is he just trying to insist that this is a law so that companies follow before it could actually be, you know, abdicated and 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 uh, confirmed? To By the way, that's the voice of the great Maria Bartiromo over at Fox. Be unconstitutional. Well, first, I think it's important to point out on a scientific basis, most of those first responders have had COVID and have recovered. So they have strong protection. Uh, and so I think that influences their decision on a lot of this, that they have already had it and recovered. Uh, and so they're not, they're making no accommodations for that. They're still pretending like that doesn't even exist. Uh, and so that's really, really troubling when you see that. Uh, but I can tell you, Maria, in Florida, uh, not only are we going to want to protect the, the law enforcement and, and all the jobs, uh, we're actually actively working to recruit out-of-state law enforcement because we do have needs in our police and our sheriff's departments. So in the next legislative session, I'm going to hopefully sign legislation that gives a $5,000 bonus to any out-of-state law enforcement that relocates in Florida. So NYPD, Minneapolis, Seattle, if you're not being treated well, uh, we'll treat you better here. You can fill important needs for us and we'll compensate you as a result. Well, there's a reason businesses and hedge funds are moving to Florida. Moving to Florida, there sure is. Like I say, that, that, that guy's the man. Ron DeSantis is the man. Um, I hope Trump does not run in 2024, and I hope DeSantis does. All right, now, uh, for those of our listeners in Virginia, as you probably know, as you probably know, Former Governor Terry McAuliffe running for governor again. And the Democrats are running scared in Virginia, which is why they brought in Kamala Harris, which is why they brought in Joe Biden. They're even going to bring, uh, pardon me, they brought in Kamala Harris and Barack Obama, and they're even talking about bringing uh, Dementia Joe in. Here is, uh, here is uh, Barack from over the weekend. It's less than 40 seconds long, so please put up with me. 
we don't have time to be wasting on these phony, trumped-up culture wars, this fake outrage that, that right-wing media peddles to juice their ratings. The great Molly Hemingway over the Federalist said, I guess that's just one way to describe child rape in negligent Virginia government schools. You know, it came out the other day, Loudoun County, Loudoun County, Virginia, the one where the school board had the dad arrested whose daughter was raped in the bathroom, 15-year-old girl raped in the bathroom by a boy who went in the ladies' room because he's wearing a skirt. And they said, didn't happen. And it turns out, superintendent emailed every member of the school board the day it happened. The day it happened. Right? I just, I don't know any other way to explain it. These people are evil. These people are evil. Oh, I almost forgot. The, the other Dr. Frankenstein project that Fauci's agency funded that saw aborted babies' body parts being grafted onto mice to grow hair and organs. Yeah, I'll put it on my Facebook page. One of these days, we're going we're gonna to start an email list well, I was going to start an email newsletter and, and, and send the, the stuff I talk about out each day. But we are, <laughs> we're doing this thing by the seat of our pants every day. Now, one of the things also I said I was going to get to today is Janet Yellen. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. I don't know if you've heard what she said about her plan to complete the destruction of the American economy. Now, she's not putting it that way. She's not putting it that way. She has the strangest voice. This is less than a minute long, and then I'll try to Break it down for you what this means. I think what's under consideration is a proposal that uh, Senator Wyden and the Senate Finance Committee have been looking at that would um, impose um, a tax on unrealized capital gains um, on liquid assets held by extremely wealthy individuals, billionaires. Um, I wouldn't call that a wealth tax, but um, it would help get at uh, capital gains, which um, are an extraordinarily large part of the incomes of the wealthiest individuals. And uh, right now, uh, escape taxation uh, until they're realized and often they're unrealized and at death uh, benefit from a so-called step-up of basis. So it's not a wealth tax, but um, a tax on unrealized capital gains of exceptionally wealthy individuals. Now, one of the things about Janet Yellen, I have a trained eye and not everybody's going to be able to see this, but when she speaks, her head, her face is really off balance. One eye is a lot more open than the other. 
and the one eye that's a lot more open than the other is much higher than the other. Her her face is really off balance. That has nothing to do with her being a liberal, has nothing to do with her being totally wrong-headed about her views on the economy. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Uh, what it does have something to do with is the best-kept secret in American healthcare, and I can't really talk about it right now. I hope to get to that next week when I can really put it together. Whenever you see somebody speaking on television and they're most comfortable leaning to one side or the other, they can't stand up straight, they can't sit up straight, there's a reason for that, and, and I plan to get to that um, at some point next week when I can really do the subject justice. So let me look at what the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal said Friday night about Yellen and, and, and see if this kind of will help it, it make some sense to you. They said Joe Biden's corporate tax rate increase appears to be dead. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen still wants to whack U.S. companies through her global tax deal. And she's planning an end run around the Constitution to do it. Ms. Yellen has broken a long bipartisan consensus to sign on to new global tax rules being negotiated at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The deal comes in two pillars in the Argo. Pillar one introduces a new method for determining which governments get to tax the revenues of the world's 100 or so largest companies. Pillar two is a global minimum corporate profits tax with a rate of 15%. Now, each country will need to implement this agreement to its, in its domestic tax law, which is where Congress comes in. Pillar 1 is a particular headache for Ms. Yellen. Existing bilateral and multilateral tax treaties specify how governments carve up corporate revenue for tax purposes. The OECD anticipates a similar treaties anticipates similar treaties to enshrine the new rules, but that would require Ms. Yellen to corral 67 senators to support the OECD and yeah, good luck on that. Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development to support their tax plan as a treaty, and there's no chance of that. So Treasury is looking to circumvent the treaty process altogether. One idea is a so-called congressional executive agreement. This could enshrine the elements of a treaty in U.S. law, which, but would require support from both chambers, including a filibuster-proofed 60 Senate votes. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But the point, though, the point of... Janet Yellen's wanting to tax unrealized gains as a great Adam Korzenowski, former financial advisor to the Trump administration and a fellow of the Claremont Institute American System of Political Economy, he explains a lot better. He says what Yellen is actually saying is that they're going to directly punish people for doing the thing you're supposed to do, which is to save and invest. This is clown world 
public policy. You can't tax something that is unrealized Janet, but she's sure going to try. She's sure going to try. They want to turn us into Venezuela, I'm telling you. It's a feature, not a bug. They want to turn us into Venezuela. It's a feature, not a bug. Actress Mel Stewart fighting for her life after she suffered a stroke after taking the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. 40-year-old actress suffering a rare blood clotting side effect following her AstraZeneca vaccine injection. That's from the Daily Mail. No, I got plenty more. I got plenty more. Yale epidemiology professor Dr. Harvey Risch, Steve Dace reminds us, is one of the most academically cited American epidemiologists alive today. Now, Dr. Risch was on Life, Liberty, and Levin Last night on Fox, one of the few things on Fox I think worth watching, Mark Levin is a master, and here's how he began the segment. Then the CDC director comes out, and not only that, they're still going to have to wear masks. Um, you, hear, uh, you hear Dr. Fauci, you, you know, people have played uh, the endless contradictions coming out of his mouth and the endless uh, television and, and uh, other media appearances he has. This has to be one of the worst year, year and a half, two year periods of, uh, of information provided to the American people by the so-called uh, scientific and medical community that I can ever remember. All right, so Yale epidemiologist, Dr. Harvey Risch. Well, as far as I can tell, that it's a top-down structure, and most doctors do not get their information by going back and reading the original studies and making up their own minds. They get fed the information from pharma reps or from what they're told from societies, and the conflicts are legion, and, and so it's no surprise that most doctors don't pay attention and think what they're told. Do you get that? Let me run the, the last part of that back by you again. And the conflicts are legion, and, and so it's no surprise that most doctors don't pay attention and think what they're told. Remember that. When you decide to just trust your doctor that you need to get the jab without doing your own research. Remember that. And the conflicts are legion, and, and so it's no surprise that most doctors don't pay attention and think what they're told. Uh, just the epidemiologist from Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Harvey Resch. That's all. So Levin comes back. If you're a parent and you have a seven or eight-year-old and the federal government is going to insist that those kids get vaccinated, or if you live in a state like California where Governor Newsom is going to do that and so forth, and he has a horrific record, most of these governors do, not all, but most, what would you do? Would you get your kid vaccinated? Would you talk to your local doctor? What would you do? Good question. Dr. Harvey Risch, Yale Medical School epidemiologist. 
If the child has chronic conditions that make their risk appreciable, then there's a reason that they would should be considered for vaccination. Other than that, if, if it were my child, I would homeschool them. Honestly, I would organize with other parents to take them out of the school and create homeschooling environments. There, there's no choice. Your child's life is on the line. It's not a high risk. Vaccination is not a high risk that's going to kill every child by doing so. However, However, it's enough of a risk that on the average, the benefit is higher for homeschooling than it is for, for vaccination and being in school. And that's just the bottom line. You know, we were seeing employees in the companies facing mandates quit or being fired. And now the public perceives that. And, uh, and companies are having a hard time replacing those employees in the climate of, of a bad employment circumstances and, and missing workers. It's getting even harder. And so those policies are being rethought when the people rebel because of their own interests then it has to be reckoned. Companies are having a hard time replacing those employees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah, yeah, they, they sure are. They sure are. Uh, no, no question about it. No question about it. Now, if I may, if I may, there is a uh, remarkable editorial in the Washington Post today. I can't believe they allowed this to be published. And it's entitled... There is no middle ground in the Mississippi abortion case. The court must overrule Roe. And this might be more important than anything I've said today. It's an opinion by a person named Sheriff Gerges, never heard of this person before, an associate professor of law at Notre Dame Law School, and here it is. The question the Supreme Court agreed to decide in the Mississippi abortion case sounds deceptively simple. That question is, are all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional? All right? If the answer to that is a clear yes, the justices will surprise us all and strike down the state law which prohibits most abortions after 15 weeks. No one expects that to happen. But if the answer is no, then the justices will confront the reality that there is then no intellectually honest way for them to uphold the Mississippi law without overruling Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey the 1992 case that reaffirmed what they call the constitutional right to abortion. There is, in other words, no middle ground in the pending case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization upholding the Mississippi law without overruling the court's previous abortion cases would lack support in any legal source, send even more abortion cases to the court, and curb the justice's ability to overrule Roe down the road. The Roberts Court, 
more lawyerly than those that decided Roe or Casey, looks to text, history, and precedent. Well, the Constitution's text doesn't mention abortion, and historically, by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, a supermajority of states had banned abortion from conception. So that leaves precedent. But Roe and Casey forbid abortion bans, as opposed to modest regulations, at any point before a fetus is viable around 24 weeks. To uphold 15-week bans, then, Dobbs must scrap precedent. Yet to retain some right to abortion, Dobbs would need to draw a new line, allowing bans to start sometime before 15 weeks into pregnancy. Well, when? When a heartbeat begins? That criterion has no legal pedigree and comes when many are just learning they're pregnant. When fetuses feel pain? Well, that may happen too late to justify the Mississippi law. Besides, it's well established that states may not prevent exercises of fundamental rights to advance goals they could achieve by less restrictive means. So Dobbs can't treat abortion as such a right and let states ban it to prevent pain. They could also prevent by requiring fetal anesthesia, as some jurisdictions do. Quickening the term for when women first feel the fetus move around 14 to 17 weeks. One obstacle is that by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, three-fourths of the states had authorized criminal convictions for pre-quickening abortions. Within 15 years, almost all others followed suit. Even before pre-quickening abortions were criminalized, they faced other heavy, heavy legal burdens. So, there never was a common law right to abortion. That notion, central to Roe v. Wade, has been debunked. The Casey decision quietly abandoned it. So, the idea of quickening is a non-starter. Well, could the court uphold 15-week laws such as Mississippi's without drawing a new line? That would embolden states and sympathetic lower courts to embrace 12, 8, or even 6-week bans. The court might try to ignore the tumults, refusing to review challenges, but it can't duck the issue for long. This dodge would prolong the politicization that the court says it wants to avoid. Last try at upholding the law without overruling Roe and Casey, some argue that the Casey decision created two rules. One, against pre-viability bans, and another, against laws imposing an undue burden on abortion access. Now, they say the undue burden test merely requires leaving a meaningful window for aborting at some point. Under this theory, the court could, the court could abandon the viability rule to save Mississippi's law while not endorsing or rejecting the undue burden test. Either way, 15-week laws would stand as they leave ample time to abort. 
But this suggestion badly misreads the so-called undue burden test, which itself hinges on viability. Under the Casey decision, what makes a regulation of the abortion procedure an undue burden is not that it leaves too little time for getting an abortion, but that it makes abortion too hard to get at a given point in time, any point until viability. Indeed, the Casey decision said undue burdens were off limits until viability for the same reason that bans were. Quoting, Before viability, the state's interests are not strong enough to support a prohibition of abortion or the imposition of a substantial obstacle to the procedure. So, if the Dobbs case currently in front of the U.S. Supreme Court declared instead that states need only leave some time to abort, it would end up reinforcing a constitutional right that the majority of the present U.S. Supreme Court doesn't believe exists. After all, the court wouldn't be leaving part of the Casey decision intact. It would be embracing something new to replace Casey's test for abortion laws as Casey replaced Roe's test. And having justified a new abortion right in their own voices, the justices would have a hard time ruling later that there is no such right at all. That's because they would then be rejecting not only Roe v. Wade and not only Casey versus Planned Parenthood, but their own words in the Dobbs decision. Why would the Roberts court take the heat for a decision in Dobbs that would only entrench a modestly slimmer abortion right? That leaves one viable option for the justices who believe Roe and Casey were wrongly decided. And that one viable option is to overturn them. Now, that's just remarkable to me. That's, uh, i got to put that on my Facebook page here in a little bit too. A Washington Post opinion saying, there is no middle ground in the Mississippi abortion case. The court must overturn, must overrule Roe uh, by a person named Sheriff Gurgis, an associate professor of law at Notre Dame. Uh, that, that's just, that's a bolt out of the blue. I can't believe the Washington Post allowed that to be printed. And I'm sure there's going to be quite an outcry. Quite an outcry. You know, each day, each day, I feel like we have only just scratched the surface. There's so many things, so many things that I want to talk about. But um, at some point, we have to wrap it up, and I guess that would be this point. Um, So, again... I don't think it's reasonable that the same entrenched powers in the United States government who believe that you should be able to murder a baby at any point in the pregnancy, all nine months, for any reason, no reason at all, I don't think it's reasonable 
to assume that these same people are concerned about your health and your child's health. They are uh, actively, with the help of their friends in big tech, trying to suppress the cases of people who get fully vaccinated and then die shortly thereafter. People who were previously healthy, you know? Like this uh, 45-year-old FBI special agent, Jeffrey Young, who leaves behind a grieving widow and three little boys. So um, we are commanded to speak the truth in love. We'll try to keep doing that. I want to say thank you so much. We already, as of this uh, live stream, it's uh, it's 1.20 p.m. Eastern, 12.20 p.m. Central on Monday, October 25th. As of this live stream, we already have over 16,000 downloads, 47 states, and 20 other countries for just the first nine episodes. This is episode 10. And I'm just so thankful that God put together a team of people to make this happen. Um, We're thankful. God closed one door when Cumulus Media decided to fire me for refusing to put an experimental gene therapy they call a vaccine in my veins. And God God closed that door and he opened another one. So thank you very much. Episode 10, Monday, October 25th. 2021 of the Doc Washburn Show. I can't wait to do the next one. We'll see you tomorrow, God willing.